If you're a dog owner, safety and welfare for your pet is of utmost concern. But there are so many so-called experts out there that many of us don't know where to turn to to get the expert advice that we need. Welcome to Taming the Wild in Your Dog with noted dog expert and author Brian Bailey. In this program, we give you the tips you need to connect with your best friend with the most practical advice. Now, here is your host, Brian Bailey. Welcome, everyone, to Taming the Wild and Your Dog. It's another Wednesday. It's a beautiful day here in Memphis. Joining me in the studio, as always, is my beautiful wife, Kira, and not so beautiful <laughs> professional dog trainer, Joshua Well, we're not going to say it on the air, that's for sure. Okay, guys, uh, last week we talked about all the confusion that surrounds the dog training world, and by golly, there was a lot of it. But I certainly hope that we sorted through some of that and we worked our way out of a few uh, little kinks there, little spider webs. And, and now that we have some daylight and some breathing room, let's focus today on the critical mistakes that people make. And these are critical. And when you make these mistakes, it's, it's just different. There are times in which, as I explained before, in the canine mind, if you cannot interpret a situation, a certain signal, a certain behavior, you will either not respond to it or you will avoid it. So the not responding to it, oh, heck, I have a husky. He always does that, even though we've been over the behaviors. <laughs> but it's the avoiding part that we want to, to avoid, just not to use another word. Uh, it's true because that leads to confusion, which then leads to fear, which then leads to you and your dog traveling down the rabbit hole and never coming back. So let's dive right into that today because we've got a lot of important information today and I want to make sure that we cover it all. Okay, so... Last week, we talked about methodologies, which one would be right for you. Now, before you embark, you need to determine what is your goal? What, what do you intend to, to modify here? Is it just a behavior like getting on your kitchen counters, getting in your flower beds, chasing the cat? Are you working on heel, sit, down, stay, a lot of common and standard obedience behaviors? What is your goal? Because it is your goal that should determine the approach that you take. I mean, it works the same way with humans. Absolutely. So why would we not think that? And you need to be flexible. There is no one size fits all when it comes to behavior, whether it be with a human or with a dog. But there are certain approaches you should take and you should not take simply based upon what your goal is. So that being said, without getting super deep into methodologies, because you could spend three to four episodes just discussing that alone. That's an understatement. Yes. Uh, so f- keep this in mind. If your goal is to create behaviors that are reliable in their response to your given command, to your given signals, and they are steadfast, and they will occur under any condition in which you give that signal. If that is what you want to accomplish, then you must use, listen to these words, you must use a balanced approach. 
There must be cause and effect. There must be cost along with benefit. And anyone out there who says otherwise is wrong. Wrong. And I've said that for 40 years, and I'll say it for another 40. They're wrong. Good God. Use your brains, people. Seriously, you really think that that treat in your hand that you suddenly of all dog owners discovered the holy grail of treats, that that will always find its way into your dog's brain and make your dog want to stop whatever it is doing and come to you or to do the behavior for that treat. Seriously, there's a lot of things that I love to eat and a lot of things I love to drink, just not all the time. I'm not always hungry. I don't always want a treat. There's sometimes I want to do something different. And you expect a dog to not be like you? They're a mammal. They have needs. They have impulses. They have instinct. They have mechanisms that govern their behavior nonstop. And every time you tell your dog to do something, the world is telling it to do something else. Everything out there from the dog across the street to the person walking by to the bicycle that just sped past you to the doorbell ringing, all of those are competing with your signal. And therefore, every now and then you have to say, hey, dog, I love you to death. You my buddy. But I tell you what, when I call you, you have to come. In other words, I don't compete when I give a command. Period. That's it, guys. And that doesn't happen with a force-free approach. Sometimes you have to force it. And that is the way it is. And if you can't get that, you can't wrap your head around that, then go listen to a couple episodes we had about taking your dog out in the public and do me a favor and stay home. Because I'm fed up with it. Whoever said that, Force-free training, all positive, is something we should do with a mammal with claws and fangs who does not use it to other dogs is in essence spreading and trying to force you to drink poison Kool-Aid. It is wrong. So again, not to beat that thing to death, but I am here to tell you, If you need your dog to reliably respond to your command, reliably, not every now and then, every single time, for the quality of life that that attains, that achieves for you and your dog, knowing I can take my dog for a walk and not dread it, not worry about my dog jumping on someone or biting someone, knowing I can take my dog to the dog park, and when I have to leave at five o'clock to go pick up my daughter from gymnastics, the dog will come when I say come. That is a higher quality of life for both human and dog. And therefore, most humans tend to keep those dogs. But because so many people are being fed, jammed down their stinking throats, this force-free crap, a million dogs a year being euthanized because they will not reliably respond to their behavior. 
Well, let's, let's talk about why, why we train in the first place. Do we train to simply train? Is that why we are training? Is the only relationship we want with our dogs is to train them? I don't know about you guys, but I want to go do things with my dog and I need reliability to, to be able to go on hikes, to be able to go out in the woods or do whatever and trust that if my dog comes up on a, you know, bobcat or whatever the case may be, I can call them off very quickly. Right, for safety reasons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if, if I have to use a little bit of adversity, guarantee my dog safety, uh, if my dog could thank me, they would. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kira and I were just at a restaurant, what, a couple of weeks ago? And we got shoved in this big room in the back because we had a larger party. So we got back there where I guess you, you might as well call it the party room or yeah, the romper room. Yeah, it was room. the party room. Uh, there were children that were completely and utterly out of control. Yeah. Out of control. Standing in the chairs, crawling under the tables. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's what, if you decide that you just want to be your child's best friend, you want to be your dog's best friend, then that's what you're going to get. Because that dog, every time you look at it, every time you give it a command, is running that situation in an atomic second through a cost versus benefit analysis. I write about dogs who kill their owners. They kill them and go right back to chewing on the bone that they were chewing on before they had to drive that owner away from that bone. If you can't accept that, you can't wrap your head around that. And better yet, if you can't implement that, stay home and suffer and enjoy the dog that you deserve, but just don't make anyone else have to do that. Okay, so we're going to move on from there. I'm not going to, like I said, I'm not going to beat that to death. But if you need reliability, you need a balanced approach. Now, that being said, we've talked before about teaching our dog tricks. I have taught many really cool tricks to dogs. Well, at least they're cool when they do it, but they don't always do it. Be why? Because I'm hoping that this force-free use a treat for the sake of doing a trick will work all the time. And it doesn't. And you just kind of have to know that and accept it uh, for what it is. Even when I was in the military, we trained dolphins for a project known as Short Time and another one, Bottom Look, and then a sea lion project called Quick Find. We had many of those mammals to do one task. Why? Because on any given day, Bogart, Weatherby, Pump, Cherry, Whiskey, Otto, the list goes on on all the name of all these dolphins and sea lions. Guess what? They weren't hungry. <laughs> they didn't want that smelt. They didn't want that mackerel. They didn't want that squid that day. They were feeling pretty, pretty satisfied. And therefore, they were going, you know, the cost of having to go to work isn't worth the benefit of that fish. Well, then you had to go, okay, well, Weatherby, guess what? But you know, that being said, that was not a force-free approach because guess what happened to Weatherby when Weatherby decided he did not want to work on that particular day? He was withheld food. food. <laughs> there you go. So next day, Weatherby was the first in line to want to work because Weatherby was hungry. Okay, guys. So again, even force-free doesn't even exist on the planet Earth. Well, even if you say you do it, if you ever look at your dog, you ever say the word no, you're not... You're already crossed the land. Well, I already know that just 
from experience of talking to some of these force-free trainers that that is one of their approaches. They put the dog's actual food kibble in the treat bag and they make the dog work for its daily amount of food. It's not like the dog just gets the food whenever. So they use that same approach that you used with Weatherby. Withhold the food until they work for it. And I hope they have seven dogs because, <laughs> yeah. uh, again, even a starving wolf will attack another wolf right. that's on his territory. Right. Uh, again, guys, if it doesn't walk like a duck or quack like a duck, it's not a duck. Common sense. Use your brain. You don't need me to tell you anything more in there. So simply adjust your approach per your training goal and you're going to be good to go. But that leads us right into the next mistake that a lot of people make. Not only do they use the wrong approach and never reach those training goals, but they do it because they received bad advice. And that goes hand in hand with the last episode where we talked about if you're going to accept advice and implement advice, make sure the advice that you're given is good. And how do you do that? A, do a little research. B, don't count on research because research is designed to fit something. It's not. It's good research operates on the credo that the absence of evidence is not evidence of an absence. It, but today's research doesn't always do that. It is tainted. It is biased. It's created to meet a certain goal. And then they just wait to see, will someone challenge us? Will someone actually come to us because there's so much research they know that's not going to happen well i i challenge our listeners right now because i have yet to be able to do it go to youtube or any type of social media and find the evidence find the evidence of of a dog that was force free trained that is off leash coming when called under high intense distractions because you can go find all of these balanced trainers tyler mudo and i mean i could go on for days all these balanced trainers that they, they do that and then they show it they show the final product but any force free training that you look at they show you how to introduce the dog to the behavior but you never see the follow up part two video, part three video where the dog is finally doing it under intense situations. You can't find it. I mean, maybe you can send me a link because I want to see it. Well, I've done better yet. For 40 years, I put out a challenge, $10,000 cash. Give me a dog for three days. You take the same type of dog, same temperament, age for three days. We videotape the entire thing and see who has the more high spirited animal and the more reliably responding animal. Okay. I put that challenge out there for 40 years. They've not taken me up on it. Okay, but we're not, again, not going to beat that to death. Uh, when it comes <laughs> to might. advice, because we could. <laughs> I, I, could I, I think it's already done. I could beat that thing to death. I could stand up right now and get out of my chair. I feel like doing it. Blood pressure's going up. My hackles are coming up. Things are coming red. out. There you go, baby. Uh, why? Because I write about the dark side. I write about fatalities. Fatalities to dogs, fatalities to humans. I operate day to day on the dark side. I don't get to be on the sunny side of dog life. I deal with dogs who suffer from mental disorders. I deal with humans who suffer from mental disorders and their dogs, and sometimes just the humans and not the dogs. This is my life, and therefore, I do everything that I can to make sure the advice that I give keeps people away from the dark side of dogs because it's not a fun place to be. And I do it, and I sacrifice a lot to do it, so, therefore, I'm extremely passionate about these methodologies because I know what achieves results and what doesn't. So, therefore, one of the other ways that if you start off on bad advice, doesn't mean you have to stay on it. 
So you get on a bad trail, you make a wrong turn in your car, doesn't mean you have to obey the Google Maps thing that's taking you nine miles out of your way. Follow your instinct. Follow your own compass. If that thing in the pit of your stomach says, you know what? This just doesn't feel right. It's just, I, I don't, there's something wrong here. Well, we have people, clients all the time who call us and they started down the path of force-free training just because it felt better to them. And then they realized they weren't getting where they wanted to go. They didn't want to have chicken in their pocket all the time. So they switched paths. Yeah. They're and, on board and with that's us it. We are humans. We are social predators. We have a kinship with our dogs. There is a thread that runs through us that is deeply and ever forever connected to dogs. We must listen to that. And if you can't, or worse yet, you simply won't, then I just need you to sit back or have someone point out to you what is now the quality of life for your dog and what about the safety of those children of yours or those family members of yours, you really have to take this into account. So don't let bad advice suck you down that rabbit hole and not let you get back. Obey your instincts. Always do so. The next thing we want to talk about is consistent, being consistent. And this stuff is so important that uh, we're, going, we're supposed to take a commercial break here in a little bit, but we're going to roll right through it. We're not going to stop for commercial on this particular segment here. We will go to it the next time. We're going to roll right through it because this stuff is so important, guys. It's so critical. So let's talk about being consistent. First of all, next week, we're going to spend the shows talking about canine communication, how to communicate effectively with your dog. Really, do they, they don't have language. They don't. So therefore, when you say words to them, in essence, what you're trying to create is a signal. Just like a red light may or may not make you stop your car, a green light tells you to go. You respond to a signal. It's important that when you are trying to communicate to your dog, which is absolutely positively required for good training, you must stereotype that communication. Again, does that not make sense? You go to a foreign country, you point to the bathroom, they say it's this thing, the next day they call it another thing, the next thing they has got a different sign on it. You will be way confused and you'll probably be constipated at the same time. <laughs> so therefore, you have well, to- Well, it depends. <laughs> oh, that, that was bad. That was really bad. Okay, guys, anyway, so- <laughs> to the signals. All right. When you talk to your dog, I get it. There's a lot of dogs named Damn it. <laughs> Damn, you're <laughs> killing me. Damn, get off the counter. Uh, I get that. But when you're communicating to your dog, you must stereotype the signal. And we'll go into this to much more detail next week, but just keep this in mind. When I say stereotype the signal, that's not the only thing that has to be stereotyped. So does the response, so does the response. So it's not good enough just to say come, but then not allow it to happen and not make it happen. 
Because now guess what? We're back to the good old cost versus benefit analysis. Cost versus benefit. Here we go. I'm at the dog park. I'm the dog. I'm having the time of my life. There's more than a few more butts I want to grab a hold with my teeth. And suddenly I hear, come. Uh, well, the benefit of staying in plane is far greater than the cost because I never really get a cost. And therefore, I continue playing. Guys, it only makes sense. If you want to teach an animal to stop what it's doing, to literally create a biological reflex, a biological reflex, the same type of reflex that if I am driving and I happen to be on my phone, and don't judge me for that because you know you do it too, I'm not texting, but if I'm talking on my phone to my wife on the way home and the light turns red, I don't have to say, excuse me, honey, take the phone away, tell my foot, hey, foot, get off the gas and press the brake. No, my car just seemingly comes to a stop. And these are automatic behaviors and responses and actions that are working because of this stereotyped signal. You may or may not see me stop for a fuchsia pink light. <laughs> if the darn thing, well, there's a color orange. I say it all the time. But there, you won't see me stopping for a purple light. Why? It's the color red. And red requires a certain action all the time. Uh, so it's not good enough just to be consistent in the commands that you give. For instance, you don't want to say come one day and someone says here the next and then all of a sudden you say come here. Very confusing, guys. Very confusing. But there's also an element of timing. Timing. Natural pairing occurs until you intervene. What does that mean? All right, you're cooking something on your stove and it smells delicious to your new Labrador that you just adopted who's a year old, whose paws can reach the top of that stove pretty easily. Well, as soon as your dog hops up there and those paws touch that hot frying pan that's got sizzling bacon in it, there's an immediate pain. And because I touched something and it was hot and it burned me, there is a natural and immediate pairing. Pairing occurs all the time. The issue is in dog training, you must make sure that the pairing occurs with what you're trying to teach them to do. And one of the best ways to do that is to apply that reward, give that benefit, or apply that cost almost instantly, as close to the action as possible. There's nothing scarier, and I know it happens to a lot of people, so if you've been doing it, just stop now. Then when you hear that they come home, find the couch is chewed up, drag the dog over to the couch, show it to them as though they have reasoning uh, in their brain, as though they have a cognitive ability to know exactly what that is, and then apply the cost. You do this for about three days in a row, I guarantee you the dog that was greeting you at the door will no longer do so. And unfortunately, that seems to reinforce this bad behavior, this action in which we're giving these delayed punishments. Uh, the dog is now hiding because guess what has been consistent? Your arrival at home mm -hmm. 
equals punishment. And therefore, when they hear the keys in the door, the doorknob turning, the dog runs. But unfortunately, now the dog owner goes, see, see, he's acting guilty. Yep. He knows better. Yeah. Well, we I see this all the time in housebreaking. All the time. All the time. I was just going to bring that up. I've seen dogs where the family actually punishes the dog for the poop on the floor or whatever. And then you, know, you realize or the family finally realizes that the dog made no association to the act of pooping on the floor because the dog continues to poop on the floor. But what I've actually seen in, in, with clients in the past is that the other dog will poop. And then the dog that was getting in trouble gets nervous because there's a pile of poop on the floor. And you're like, okay, well, now you've associated the fact that since there's poop on the floor, you're in trouble. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the act of pooping. Right. <laughs> so, guys, you, you have to be consistent. If you're going to apply a reward, you're going to give a treat, pet, at a boy, at a girl, are you going to apply a correction? Try to make it as instant as possible. If you missed it, if you're more than two seconds late, now let's think about that. 1,001, 1,002. That's instant. Pretty much. If you are later than that, walk away. Chalk it up and go, dang, I should have been faster. Or I should have placed the dog in a position where I could observe it because good training is about success. It's setting the dog up to succeed not to punishment, to show it, this is what I need you to do, baby. This is it, baby. This is it. That's your job. That's what we're supposed to do. Not set them up for failure. Set them up to succeed. And therefore, if you keep missing these behaviors, then stop missing them. Create the ability. This is when we do things like put dogs in crates. Guess what? You can't shoot a sofa while I'm at work because you're in a crate. However, when I'm home and I can watch you and I can catch you, then I can implement the training that's necessary. So otherwise, here's what the dog learns. Sometimes you catch me within that two seconds. Sometimes you don't. Then you do. Then you don't. So now what I learn, sofas aren't bad to chew on. They're just bad to chew on in front of humans. Same thing with housebreaking. Yeah. The list goes on and on. And you spent 30 minutes training your dog to sit, but you said, oh, good sit. Or you gave that treat five minutes because it took you that long to get it out of the treat bag was, that was designed to hold your treats, but you got it two Ziploc bags inside of that. <laughs> and now the dog is going, thanks for the treat. Hey, by the way, what are we doing? <laughs> so guys, be consistent. All right. The next thing, patience. I can't say this enough. Canines are slow maturing mammals. In fact, due to our influence, they never grow out of a pediomorphic stage. They are literally teenagers, young teenagers for life. We arrested that development. We wanted that. We wanted to stare at them and have our parental pathways hijacked and the oxytocin flowing through our brain and neopeptides that we empathize with them. We want to care for them. We did that to enhance their value to us. Can you imagine if we didn't, the storm we would be in? No. Out of control dogs. But as you train, understand 
that your dog's brain, even just from a scientific level, not even from the behavioral standpoint, but from a scientific level, biological, neurobiological level, that the brain develops outside of the womb. It's not finished in the womb. It now comes out of the mother's body and continues to grow, expand, develop signals as a young wolf cub. They only know four primary signals when they come out of the den. All the rest are learned as their brain can learn, and they start to put them in a series of signals. So I don't need one. You can give me five, and that five equals this behavior. That's more complex, kind of like a children with an alphabet block. What is this block? Uh, A, good. What is this one? B, there we go. And next thing you know, hey, let's put a couple of these blocks together, and what does it form? A word. So we don't expect our children to come out of the womb writing essays, completing full sentences. Why do we want a four-month-old dog to be able to do completely, reliably, off-leash, obedience, complex behaviors like come to you, do a flip turn, walk on your left side, switch to the other side? Why? Because we're impatient impatient. and we're lazy. And we don't want to do the work. In fact, I'm just waiting for Alexis to become a professional dog trainer. Hey, Alexa, tell my dog to come. Alexa, you do it while I sit here on my butt on my sofa and talk to my TV. (laughs) Guys, be patient. Takes a little bit of work. It really does. Make sure that your goals can be achieved by the mammal in which you're implementing that training and trying to achieve those goals. Do not try to train a dog to do something that it cannot do at an early age in life. And we have a couple examples. Uh, Kira's got one about protection dogs. Yeah, all the time we get people calling and they've got a new puppy, a new German Shepherd puppy. They just, okay, I want this dog to be my personal protection dog. And it's how old? Uh, 13 weeks. 14 weeks. And they are blown away when I tell them, no, sir, we don't even begin any kind of protection work until that dog is well over a year old, possibly two years old. And even then, we don't know if you're going to have the right dog for it. We have to look at their heart and see, do they have the heart for the work? Yeah. And the the issue with that is, is not even going to a big scientific Uh, explanation here, two sides of the brain, right hemisphere, left hemisphere. The younger the mammal is, the right hemisphere, which is mostly responsible for emergency situations, identification of friend and foes, along with many other functions. But that's the primary one, emergency situations. The aperture, the, the younger the mammal is, the tighter and smaller and more narrow the aperture of that camera lens is. And then with each passing month, it starts to open its field of view. Why is it so narrow? Because when you're 13 weeks old, you're not supposed to be protecting anything. You are supposed to be under the protective custody of your parents. So therefore, to ask a 13-week-old puppy to start doing protection work, to identify what is a valid threat, 
impossible, guys. Impossible. We have seen dogs come in here who have been forced to do the protection training when they were way too young. And that is a sad, sad case because these dogs don't recover from it. Yeah. And you know what is the threat? All humans, all guys, anyone carrying anything that looks like a broom, a tennis racket, golf club, or anything, all of them. That's what you did. You imprinted that young puppy to teach them that there is a signal or a symbol, a symbol in the human form. And that thing brings violence. That thing is a threat because that's what a 13-week-old puppy can learn. Now, if you want to do protection training and you have this young puppy, I competed many years in Schutzen and I competed in ring sport. You can start working on athletic skills, targeting. Hey, like, like a young boy, you throw a four-year-old boy a, 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 a volleyball and it goes right through his hands. At six years of age, he catches about half of them. Ten years of age, 95% of them. Fifteen years old, he can shag those things over a fence or whatever. It's athletic development. You can start to work on that targeting strike. You can start to work on a little bit of strength, but not much because they haven't even gotten their adult teeth yet. Because again, you're not supposed to have to protect anyone or anything when you're that darn young. All right. So guys, be patient. Make sure that your training program does meet the appropriate developmental level of that dog that you're working with. I want to I remind also about housebreaking. We have people call us all the time about housebreaking. They, they say their, their puppy is fully housebroken at 12 weeks old. I'm like, gosh, people, yes. no. It's been no. proven. This has been proven by UPenn, uh, Cornell, UC Davis, countless uh, major universities who study canine behavioral science, that the cortical development to achieve sufficient cortical development to understand that inhibition of urinating or defecating in certain environments has to be started at a minimum of eight and a half weeks. So therefore, when you embark on this at six weeks and seven weeks, you're just not obeying nature. She has her reasons for development. We don't, at least I hope we don't, try to shove calculus down a kindergartner's throat and then punish them when they can't do it. So guys, if that makes sense to you, just keep rocking it. All right, the next thing I want to talk about, number five on our list here, improper use of training tools. All right, here's my one beef with most people with anything that goes around their dog. Too loose. By far, too loose. I cannot tell you. The, the, one of the things that we need to understand is we are dealing with an animal that is not a human being. So if human beings were created to carry their offspring in their mouths over 90 kilometers of rough terrain up the side of a mountain, down the other side of that darn mountain, over a frigid creek, to then chase, capture, pull to the ground, kill, dissect, ingest an animal the size of an SUV with big, long fangs, bone-crushing jaws. Well, what kind of neck do you think you need to have to support all of that? <laughs> so their neck is not like your neck. Yeah, it's got some major components like we have, but it's typically surrounded by many more muscles than what the human neck has. It is more akin to your thigh. So again, so many people are worried about, oh, I'm going to hurt my dog. Well, 
do your own little studies and make sure and do your own little experiments. Again, watch out for certain studies out there because they're not all factual. They are not designed to fit. They're designed to create the goal that was intended by the person doing the research. Do your own experiment. But callers, if you use them, no matter what kind, need to be snug. Um, so that's my problem with a lot of them. But there's training tools that range from remote callers. No, I don't call them shock callers. Why? Because it's a haptic signal, a touch. I mean, my gosh, do we walk around with shock phones? <laughs> I mean, these things touch at a level that when I get a message, especially when Kara really wants to contact me, she, has, she must have some app on her phone that can make my, not vibrate in my pocket, but beat my leg. <laughs> That's, that's a haptic signal. She's trying to communicate to me. She's trying to evoke a certain response from me. Answer your stinking phone. Mm -hmm. Well, remote training callers can do that very thing. They can touch a deaf dog. We're training a couple of deaf dogs now. How, how can you get them to come if they're not looking at you? You have to touch them. Hello, see me over here? There you go. Now come to me. Uh, so, again, the, the problem with those is that most people – a, put those on inappropriately in or, or just not appropriately. They're not snug enough. Same with prong collars, slip collars, harnesses, leashes. Uh, you know what I feel about retractable leashes. A great housebreaking tool, a tool for training come when called, a tool for training fetch. But outside of that, really just not a good tool to use. Very difficult to manipulate the dog and to create the behaviors that you want to create in that Back to remote callers for just a second. Wouldn't you say that probably 99 out of 100 clients who walk through our doors and have had some kind of experience with remote callers in the past are using them incorrectly? Absolutely. Absolutely. They forgot about pairing. Yeah. Pairing. They think that they just purchased a remote control for their dog. Exactly. It's kind of like, hey, honey, we take that dog to the dog park today. Watch this. If he don't come, I'll light his sorry little butt up. <laughs> and that's what they do. They get to pressing buttons. And of course, the dog's going, what the heck is that? What is that? Oh, my God. It's horrible. Now, I don't want to go back to the dog park. Uh, mm -hmm. This thing's hurting me because he's turned up way too high. No, guys. When we train a dog properly or you train a dog properly or a remote caller, it starts off with pairing, which means they know it's there. That's all. And you say sit and the dog, you press the button and the dog goes, okay, looks all over the place, up the sky, at the ground, all around it and goes, uh, what the heck is that? And you're still holding it down and you're saying sit. And the dog goes, I heard you, but give me a second. I need to figure out what the heck this is. So then you guide the dog until sit manually. And then when they do, you let go. Now, you do that about 50 times, and even our husky can start to pick up on that and go, <laughs> you know, I don't know what the heck that is, but I have noticed that when the dude says sit, it turns on and gets me, and when my butt hits the ground, it goes away. Mm -hmm. Pairing has to be done because pairing teaches the animal how to make it go away. Yep. I, almost in every single one of my private lessons where we work with remote callers, I find the level for the dog and then I hand the remote over to them and I say, here, feel, feel what your dog is feeling. And they put it on and I press the button and they see that it's, it's going on and they go, I don't, I don't think it's working. It's not, I don't feel anything. I go, that's my point exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. And hence why I don't like to get into splitting hairs and getting into different name calling or whatever. But I, I, I am a firm believer that how you label something can immediately cause you to have a certain perception of it. Sure. Yeah. And therefore, if you call it a shock caller, 
Now you're thinking about the time mm-hmm. that you stuck your finger or that bobby pin or that flathead screwdriver yeah. into that outlet. And you're thinking a, pain. Yeah. And you also imagine a little blue light going in between the two contact points, yeah. like yeah. a taser. Yeah. Or you're something. thinking Frank's sign. Yeah, right. Yeah. So again, when you think of it like a remote training call or something mm-hmm. that allows you to remotely touch an animal and communicate with the animal, then I find people start to relax a little bit. And I say, hey, we're so technologically savvy. You know, why can't we, why, why is it against the rules to use technology to communicate with our dogs when we use it to communicate even with our children? Why can't we do that? If you want to call the darn thing a fur baby, you want to think it's a little person or fur coat, then you explain to me right now why I can't touch you with a sensation that is less than what I get touched with by you. Again, yeah, we can just debate this all day long. But let's keep rolling here because we're getting ready to roll up on a break and we are going to take this break here. Uh, Regardless of the equipment you use, and we just already talked a little bit on this, number six, if you have a poor skill set or you don't have proper knowledge and training on how to use that equipment, then it really doesn't matter what you're using because it's going to be ineffective or harmful. Harmful. For example, a prong collar, pinch collar, as you've heard them called. They are meant to do exactly that, pinch. They're meant to be mom's teeth on my neck. Remember, I never got handled with fingers. Never did. I got handled with teeth. So this is supposed to, in an artificial way, simulate mom's teeth on my neck, which means when mom does this to me, she doesn't bite me. And again, I'm going back to wolves. I'm going back to the intrinsic mechanisms that guide dogs who share 99.8% of their mitochondrial DNA with. Mom doesn't bite me because biting creates holes and holes in bite infection. And we have dead cubs. Mom grabs me, squeezes me, presses on me. That's what a prong is supposed to do. So therefore, it is supposed to be snug so it doesn't bite your dog. It's not meant to impale them and barb them. So again, unless you know this and you put it on properly, then I don't care what your skill set is. You're not accomplishing your goal. What you are doing is diving backwards and creating pain when pain's not necessary. You're creating confusion, fear, Fear. so on and so forth. And there it goes. So on any train equipment, I almost feel like, like Kira's talking, that we, that before you're even allowed to use, for example, a remote training collar, it should be required that you have training on it. I fully agree with that. A lot lot of our clients come in and they say, oh, I have a remote. I have one of those. Yeah, I have one of those. Well, well, you have to know how to use it for it to be effective. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Rewards. Let's talk about that because everyone likes to talk about rewards. Everyone loves a reward. I love reward. Everyone likes a reward. But here's the problem. You have to find a reward that works. Otherwise, is it a reward? Or by definition, is it reinforcement? If you were to hand me cottage cheese after a hard day of writing or training (laughs) and say, good, Brian. You'd be so upset. (laughs) Oh, I would be upset. And I would quit training and I would quit writing. I quit doing a lot of things. I'd go on a starvation diet and you name it. You must find the reward that matches the dog's motivation. Is my I, We have one dog that if we break out a ball, the world disappears. Wonderful reward. 
And then we have some dogs that are crazy about a piece of cheese. Oh, they're all crazy. They yeah. hear the wrapper on the piece of cheese and they're all in there, even yeah. the cats. Amen. They're all <laughs> crazy about it. But there are, we have dogs that we train that have no interest in that cheese. They have no interest in that ball. What they want is your touch that reassuring touch. So speaking of even that, not only do you need to find the reinforcer that works, but make sure you don't overdo it. Meaning so many times petting can be overstimulation. It can cause the animal to lose focus. Oh God, pet me here. Scratch me here. While you're that, go, go down my spine. There you go. Just stop at the base of my tail. I just <laughs> love the base of my tail. And same thing with food. There are dogs that are food greedy. And again, they can't focus on sit, heel down, or stay. All they can focus on is that treat. So watch out for that, guys. Uh, not only do you need to use the proper reward, the one that entices your animal, that gains their attention, that teases out that motivation that we need, you need to use it properly, properly. Brian, I'm going to withhold your IPAs until you get your book done. Oh, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Kara doesn't get one unless I get one. It's just a, one of those little rules that we have. And I, and I encourage all guys out there, have the same rule. Uh, well, then again, you, you won't be at a bar by yourself. Right. <laughs> like I call my wife. I can't have, can't have a beer unless my wife's here with me. Uh, just real quick, one thing on those uh, reinforcement before we move on to number nine, and we're going to wrap it up with number 10. But on the... Back to my rewards. Keep this little phrase in mind. Too much of a good thing is a bad thing. And that applies to a lot of humans. It applies to dogs. We talked about in our doggy daycare segment, dog park segment. Too much of a good thing is a bad thing. It means it loses its value. It can create exhaustion. It can create lack of motivation. I like to give the example that, Joshua, if you are really, really, really thirsty, if I gave you a teaspoon of water, would that quench your thirst? A little, a little bit. Mm-hmm. If I gave you 25 of them, how are you feeling now? I, I've got to pee and I don't need any more water. <laughs> there you go. So now all of a sudden training ends. Yep. You watch out, guys. We all tend to think that we have to always give reward, which brings me to another point. Uh, If Kira, if every day I tell her, you look nice, you look nice, you look nice. And then she goes out of her way to look nice, meaning the new outfit, get some mani-pedi, all those sort of things. And then I say, you look nice. I'm slapped. (laughs) Simple as that. It's a sucker punch is what she calls it. And here it comes. Dogs are no different. They, if you obligatorily just give this little treat all the time, sit, good dog, treat, sit, good dog, treat, it loses its luster. It fails to motivate. But when you wait and you manipulate that animal, remember, you're setting it up to succeed. When you do that, then and only reward that action, they're going to flag it, flag it. And go, what do I need to do to get that again? And guys, that is known to a degree as a variable reinforcement. And if you want to see how powerful that reinforcer is, I just invite you to hop on a plane and go to Vegas. (laughs) Because again, that one-armed bandit does not reward you all the time. 
but it has driven a lot of people into bankruptcy and everything else as they're building those big, beautiful hotels on your dime. They know the power of a variable reinforcement. So apply that to your training as well, meaning you shouldn't reward unless it deserves to be rewarded. Mm -hmm. And just putting your butt on the ground when I say sit may or may not deserve a reward. And maybe how you put it and how fast you put it and what you look like while you're putting it. And do you hold it while the other dog comes walking by and the person rings the doorbell comes in my door. Keep increasing even what you have to do to get that reward. Same thing with humans. It's called progress. It's called growth. Push that thing, baby. Push it to the limit. All right. Number nine, insufficient proofing. Okay. Here's just something. And again, we're going to cover this in big detail in next week's episode. I can't wait. I love canine communication. Well, just know this. When you tell your dog, for instance, come. I love to use that one because I love a dog that comes from God. Did you know that unless you're in some sort of think tank, it's all dark, no other sound, that you, again, are not the only signal that arrived in that dog's brain. About the time you said come, someone shut their car door outside. Some motorcycle went by. Some plane flew over. Some dog barked. Some cat meowed. There's always a multitude of signals. And if the dog can interpret those signals, its brain, like yours, automatically prioritizes that signal. So which one will be number one? Which one will be number two? You have to teach your dog that when you're given a command, you are always number one. I always take the number one spot in the priority, not the door, not the cat, the dog, and so on and so forth. You must do that. And the only way you can do that is by proving, meaning a dog will never be reliable and the performance of a behavior in a condition in which it was not trained previously. So again, you teach your dog to lay down in your living room. Great, wonderful start. However, if your aspiration is for the dog to lay down at your favorite cafe, drinking your favorite IPAs, then you might want to start thinking about doing a little bit of training there. I always say people always go go there and with the you know, hopes that they're going to be able to enjoy the evening out. And then they go, well, the dog didn't do very well. I go, well, go there first with the intention of training. Training, train first. And then you can go. It's always preparation. It's always, you have to be able to, to perform. Will my dog stay on this place, Cot, when the pizza guy comes over? I don't know. Uh, call the pizza guy over and, and see if it stays. And yeah, if it does, order a pizza. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, that, there, there's a good outcome there regardless <laughs> right. if you do that. And I always yeah. tell people, you do the proofing that no matter what the dog does, there's a good outcome, <laughs> at least for you anyway. Uh, make the training fun. You have to do that. Yeah. You know, and I think uh, kind of the same thing with the proofing, you can bring fun to that. Right. It's enjoying to see that. I always say you have, you're always in competition with every other signal that the dog is being provided. That's the smells, the sounds, the sights, everything that the, the dog is surrounded by. You're in competition with that. Always blow your competition out of the water. Surround that signal with reward and punishment, and the dog won't question a single thing. 
Yeah. yeah. Amen. You know, and at some point, if you are doing all the things that we tell you to do, you're using the right equipment to achieve the right response. You've got the right knowledge. You're using the right timing. You're teasing out the correct motivation. You will, and you do the right proofing, you will achieve an animal who will develop its behavior. The behaviors will be developed into what's called a fixed pattern. And again, that's back to my red light. Good Lord, if someone stepped up today and said, that's it, we've had this thing all screwed up. We need to start going on red and stopping on green. I'm toast. It is game over for Brian driving. (laughs) Anyone else on the road that's going to obey that needs to get off the road if I'm out there because I'm going to kill you. And someone's going to rear in me and kill me. I'm an old dog. You can't teach that new trick to. Maybe the young people get together. I won't because that's a fixed action pattern. Why is the light that's always been red that made me stop? The one that's always been green that made me stop. We talked about that. So, guys, keep that in your brain. Make sure you do that. And also, one little last word on the proofing thing. Be Keep the maturation. Again, you got to keep all these things we talked about. I hope you're writing them down. If not, load, download this thing. Go back. Pause it where you need to. Take into account your dog's maturation when you are doing your proofing. There are some things, the two-year-old dog, do you say, down, right there on a busy street with a Harley Davidson going by? Fine. Got that thing all day, every day. You do that to some four-month-old dogs, and they will never want to go near a road again. Never. Dogs go through fear periods. They're developing Guys, be really careful. Make sure the proofing matches their abilities, matches the maturation, and so on and so forth. So much to think about, but really when you start doing it, it really isn't that much to think about. All right, let's get into the last thing, very last thing. Be careful about developing bad habits. Be careful. Uh, One of the biggest ones that I've seen is the training equipment is only on the dog only when you carve out that 15 minutes during the day to train. Now, you do that. Anyone out there, you know what I'm talking about because if you've got a leash and you walk a dog, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You get that leash out of your cabinet, off that hook, and watch what your dog does. Every mammal on the planet at the end of the day, at the most fundamental level, is doing nothing but simply trying to adjust to a change in their condition. As soon as you break out that leash, there's a change in your condition right then and there. So, again, hey, dog, come here. Let me put this slip collar on you. There we go. Got that nice and snug. That's fitted properly. Looks good, like Brian said. And let me attach this leash, and he'll sit down. Stay. And then we're done. We both get a treat. I take off the training equipment, and now I say those same commands without being able to make it happen. And what you've created is when this thing's on me, I'm a good dog. Equipment association. There you go. (laughs) When it's off of me. I'm not. Another one is end of exercise with the treat. Again, this goes back to rewards. If you say to a dog, sit, and they sit, and you give treat, you give pet, you give attaboy, and then you say heal. And you do this over and over again. That everything that you do and you do consistently that is associated with their need to do a certain response to a, to a signal becomes part of the signal. And that leads me on to the next thing, clucking or clicking or whatever you want to call it. When you think that you're training a horse instead of a dog, (laughs) come, heel, sit, down. That little clicking 
becomes a compound signal. It is there when everything else comes. So don't be surprised if one day you don't do that and you just say heal and the dog looks at you because remember, I can't interpret the signal because it's missing something, something really big. It's that clicking sound. Where did that go? Same thing with any movements you make. You tilt your head, you touch your head. Kira, you had a great one about come and call. Well, I remember we had a client who was having trouble with their dog staying where they were because she would put her dog in a down and then she'd turn her back and she'd walk, 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 and then turn around and prepare to call her dog. But she didn't even get to the come part before the dog was on the way. And she's like, what am I doing? I don't understand what's going on. And you told her. She thought it was a stay problem. Yeah. But what it was is that (laughs) the timing of her turning and facing her dog and saying, come right then became part of the signal. And then when you take into account that dogs learn with their eyes long before their ears, vision is number one in their learning repertoire. It took no time at all. She didn't even have to say come any longer. Walk any distance, do whatever you want, the dog stays. You turn and face me, I'm on my way. On the way. Yeah, Yeah, so watch out for that kind of stuff too, guys. You've got to be really careful with it. Okay, so we're getting ready to wrap up this episode. We went over the major things, just kind of highlight them one last time. Make sure you pick the right methodology. Watch out for bad advice. Remember, there's a saying about half truths. Sometimes you only get the right half and sometimes you get the wrong half. Be consistent. Be patient. Make sure that you know how to use your training equipment properly and you do use it properly. Make sure you know about rewards. Tease out that motivation. Tease it out. Make sure you use a proper reinforcement schedule. Make sure you proof out the dog at the rate that the dog can do it, and then make sure you do it at the level that you're going to need it to be able to be accomplished under the environments or the conditions in which you need reliability. All right, guys, we're getting ready to wrap it on up. If you have any questions, you know where to reach me, Brian with a Y at TamingTheWild.com. Hop on our website, too. We have lots of different training programs, a lot of different blogs. I've got a couple of books, Embracing the Wild and Dog and the Hammer, Why Dogs Attack Us and How to Prevent It. And for those of you out there doing housebreaking, I got a simple little book, 10 Steps to Success, Housebreaking 10 Steps. I guarantee if you follow that, you will get her done. You for sure will. Because again, this has all been written out of the experience. All right, next week, we are going to delve deeply into canine communication. Now that we've sorted through the confusion, now that we know how to do all, avoid all these critical mistakes, let's talk about how do you communicate to that dog? Precisely, what do you avoid? What do you do? How do you communicate? Because that is our next step to our trained dog as we could take this journey week after week. So stay tuned for that, guys. We'll be back next Wednesday. It's been great having you. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join host Brian Bailey again for another edition of Taming the Wild in Your Dog next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your dog's welfare and your life may depend on it.